0: Welcome to the Game Boss Podcast, a show about artistry and industry and music. My name's Adam Eckler and it's my mission to get you the tools to have a thriving career. Today I'm talking to Chicago-based saxophonist Roy McGrath. Roy started the saxophone at 16. Alright, most kids that go through like United States music programs, we start band at about fifth grade, 10 years old. Roy started at 16 years old, shortly thereafter was performing with the Beach Boys down in Puerto Rico, and then came to the United States to go to school in New Orleans, and shortly thereafter attended one of the most prestigious music schools in the country, in Northwestern University in Chicago. I asked him how he went from being a beginner saxophonist to attending one of the most prestigious music schools in the country within a handful of years. He's been in Chicago ever since, He's been blowing up the scene, playing the major festivals, touring around the world with his bands. We get into the nitty-gritty about how he's funded his tours, what it's like being a full-time saxophonist in Chicago right now, how he's booking his gigs, what kind of gigs he's playing, and also Roy's been nominated for a Latin Grammy for his 2017 album. He's got a new record coming out this year called Menhune, which is based on the idea of an elixir that a Puerto Rican grandma might make from all the various different things that you'd find in somebody's cupboard. In some ways, like gumbo in New Orleans, it's like this mixture that's improvised. And that's how he's thinking about this new record where he's taking the historic rhythms of Puerto Rico, Bomba, and Plena, and he's mixing it up with music that he studied here in the United States, absorbing that stuff in his time spent in New Orleans, but also in his studies in New Orleans and Chicago. We get into the details of how he was able to book three separate tours around Asia and multiple tours in Latin America. This was really an awesome conversation and we covered some heavy topics, so I hope you enjoy my conversation with Roy McGrath. Go pre-save his new record, Menhune. The link is in the description. Sweet. So how are you doing, man? I'm
1: good, man. I spent seven hours in the studio yesterday recording and went straight from there to the Jazz Showcase's Fiji to Carrillo play.
0: Woo.
1: So I have a 16-hour day between like playing and hanging out and stuff and... Yeah, I'm a bit, for winter, I'm a bit overwhelmed right now with everything I'm doing, but that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, it seems like, I've been talking with some people that are full-time players, and it seems like the gigs have now officially come roaring back. A year ago, it was like we still had Omicron was new, and now it's like we've had a year where people are feeling more comfortable going out to shows. Is that the sense you're getting?
1: Yeah, it is. I've talked to, almost any professional musician I've talked to has told me, that this year, excuse me, 2022 is the year that they've made the most money in their entire lives. Holy uh, smokes. Yeah, and that for sure goes for me too. And I have a feeling it's not going to repeat itself, yeah. uh, but shit is going to stay at a high level for maybe one or two more years. Because I, I was talking to somebody the other day about this. I don't think it's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I don't think it's possible to for people to just have this workload for multiple years. Sure. At least that's my personal opinion. It's you not know?
0: sustainable.
1: It, that's what i'm looking for i don't it's think it's sustainable.
0: sustainable
1: yeah yeah and i think for the regular person it's also not su- sustainable because uh i'm hanging out with a lot of pe- young younger people i'm 34 but I've, I've been hanging out with musicians in their 20 like early 20s and 25 yeah. and stuff and it seems like people are just going out every single night like just people just want to hang
0: yeah you know? cool uh,
1: yeah that's i don't cool. know it's uh, it's Interesting times.
0: Yeah. yeah, I thought as a as a company uh, like Gig Boss predicted based on like research we did that there would be a boom of events following the pandemic because historically that is what happens when there's when you ground all flights for a while it's like then there's a boom in flights when you yep. when it's like when there's a pandemic there's a boom in events so I I'm not surprised that's the case but yeah sustainability is the real question and then. I don't know if you're making more money than you've ever made. It's do you want to keep making that much money? And if so, then how do you do it without being out every single night? That's like, that's kind of where my head goes. Like, yeah. All right. Or how do or, I keep this you know, up?
1: Yeah. And, and gig boss, gig boss wise, like how do you do it while being more efficient? Yeah. Because we've texted about this a bit on on Facebook, but I, it's a bad leader thing. So I men don't get it. But there are times where on a Monday or a Tuesday, like literally, like now, I'll have. 15 gig text threads out for 15 different gigs yep. uh, and I try to explain this to people okay so let's go ahead and just assume it's a quintet for everything which is not true But yeah. so 10, 10 gigs let's just go 10 10 gigs times 5 people that's 50 responses that go back and forth Yeah. and if every one of them bounce shit back and forth between you right yeah. between each other then all of a sudden it's like 250 text messages that you have to and then people side text you the same thing. So that's why GigBoss is cool yeah. like, because it just, it, efficiency is the name of the game.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. We really want to make that communication side more efficient too. And we're not quite there yet. It's better. It's getting better. But that's definitely something we've got our eye on is can we do internal chats and stuff? Whatever. We don't have to talk about this. I'm curious about what yeah, your yeah. session was. What was your session yesterday?
1: So there's a, new, there's a new guitar player from Puerto Rico in town by the name of Richard Pena. I just went online. The dude has, I think 120,000 followers on Instagram. Uh, he figured out a way how to do that. Uh, it's really interesting because he's uh, first of all, he's an absolutely incredible jazz guitarist, has a successful Instagram following. And also he's brand new to the city from Puerto Rico. So he's going through that process of not knowing how America works.
0: Yeah, sure. Basically. Which You went through that as a young man so, coming here for yeah, college. Eleven
1: years ago, being part of the diaspora is a process. But yeah, he wanted to mark like his first like eight or nine month, basically year in Chicago. So we recorded two songs at Brax tracks. One, it's pretty cool. He dedicated it to me because of how much I've helped him in the last couple of months. And the other one was a collaborative thing we did together. Oh my God, did we? Are we start? Did we start already? Because my, I had my loop on.
0: <laughs> That's all right. We started. Yeah, let's. I can use the audio from Zoom for the start. It's not a big deal. Okay, I just
1: redid it and took my loop off. It's been looping the whole time and recording (laughs) takes.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's all right. Yeah, so you've recorded a couple tracks with him. You helped him get settled here in the States. Were you in communication with him as he was on his way over? Yeah,
1: there's a a really good friend of everybody in the Puerto Rican jazz community. The old director of jazz studies for the University of Puerto Rico, Samuel Morales Correa, an incredible bassist. Yeah, he uh, he's one of those guys that whatever he says, you just do.
0: Yeah,
1: he's one of those people. And he was recently diagnosed with Parkinson's and it's pretty severe now. But he hit me up last February and he was like, hey, man, you need to go meet Richard. Richard, I was in Puerto Rico recording. I was in Puerto Rico rehearsing the musicians for my album. Yep. And he was like, hey, you need to meet Richard. So I met Richard at Richard's gig in Puerto Rico, sat in with the band and he said, I'll see you next week or two weeks from now in Chicago. I'm moving there. Wow. Uh, A guy who's lived his entire life on an island. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know how layers work the way I didn't know how layers work. He didn't know. He didn't know how.
0: What do you mean by layers? What do you mean by layers? Oh, it's cold. Like literally winter. Yeah, Um, I got you. I got you. I got you.
1: I had to learn how to winter. Yeah, didn't did know how to read parking signs in Chicago, which most people here still don't. Yeah, sure. All the all those things like humidifier. Like we don't use humidifiers in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a humidifier. Right. So, I helped him with a lot of stuff, and yeah, now he's here in in town, and he's been in Chicago for eight or nine months, and absolutely killing it. And although we're friends, I'm just honored to be able to put saxophone down on a couple tracks of him.
0: Cool, cool. Yeah, so let's talk about your transition to the States. So you're you're 16 years old. You pick up the saxophone. Yep. That's quite late in your development as a human to be picking up the saxophone. Were you playing music beforehand? Were you doing anything else? Or was it like you picked up the saxophone and all of a sudden you're playing with the Beach Boys in Puerto Rico? <laughs> no, but you do your research. I can tell. Carly. <laughs> no,
1: fourth grade jumped into choir. Most Puerto Rican kids do choir. It's like a thing down yep. there. So choir through elementary school, choir through high school, I loved singing. Last two years of high school, picked up the guitar, took guitar lessons for two years. And then I just told a friend of mine a story about how I saw a saxophone in a movie and I wanted to play it. And she had her father's old saxophone in a closet and she just gave it to me. Wow. And Yeah, literally, if it weren't for her, for Rosalind, my friend Rosalind, I wouldn't be doing any of this. Um, Maybe I would have found a way, but she started it. Yeah.
0: I'm amazed that you went from being a 16 year old saxophone beginner to living in New Orleans and going to school there for music. And then shortly after, we're talking in a span of maybe between 16 and 21, 22, you're at Northwestern, one of the most prestigious music schools in the country in Chicago. How do you make that transformation from a beginning saxophonist at 16 to in graduate school, one of the most prestigious schools in the country at 22 or something?
1: Well, the most important thing about that is for everybody to know that I absolutely sucked. Like the whole lore about, oh, you're so gifted. No, no, you got to practice. And and I think my first five years, you're talking about those first five years, we're talking about my year and a half to two years playing in Puerto Rico, and my three years of college in New Orleans, plus the other three that I lived in New Orleans just playing music, man, I just practiced. I practiced a ton. It was me and Greg Ajed, who now is playing with Michael Bublé. Oh yeah. And it was just us in the practice rooms at the beginning of the day every day and at the end of the night every night. And most people that went to school with me at Loyola in New Orleans be like, yeah, Roy was a little bit weird and I was weird because I came to the States and I was, and I didn't know what was going on because I went from Puerto Rico to the South. Yep. So I was displaced and didn't understand what was going on in that way. And also I showed up to college not knowing my scales. So I'm like, man, I just, I need to to catch up, but also I want to learn. So were you fluent in English yet? I would say that uh, I was, yes, I was fluent in English, but Puerto Ricans speak uh, Spanglish. Okay. So, I'll speak a little bit of English, me español, then I will go back to English, de como que le alguien en español, then like I'll just say something to another friend in English and we just go back and forth. It's it's literally Spanglish is literally a language. When I came, yeah, when I came to the States, most of my first couple friends were Costa Rican and they couldn't understand my Spanish. Interesting. Cuz mm. cuz we have a lot of anglicisms. We don't say este. So for parking, we don't say estacionamiento. We say mm-hmm. parking. And they're wow, like, parking. That's wild, man. What's parking? What's parking? Yeah. So I have to learn how to separate my English and my Spanish. Yeah. And then st- it's like English, Spanish, tayano or Spaniard, Spanish, Puerto Rican, Spanish. It's They're the same language, but at the same time, not.
0: Yeah. So what, what was that time in New Orleans like for you? I imagine being... Like I've been down to New Orleans a bunch of times and played down there. And the energy of that place, the music in that place, the way those players play, like going to see Stooges and Rebirth and TBC. And it's like that stuff had such a huge impact on me just in terms of what I could imagine was possible on the trumpet. I was just like, oh, my God, you can play trumpet like that. What was that experience like for you? Did that fuel a fire for you being down there at Loyola?
1: Okay, so I got a question for you. Yeah. When did you? When was the first time you went to New Orleans, or like when was the first time that you spent a significant amount of time in New Orleans?
0: I went down there for the first time with the Jack Brass Band. We played. Jack Brass Band has a great relationship with Stooges and with the Preservation Hall. So we played Preservation Hall. But I was too green to play the gig, so I sat in the green room. I didn't even play the gig. Wow. We went back later, and I played at Preservation Hall and sat. In, we always had guests from New Orleans play with us. So like Will Smith, the trumpeter Will Smith played with us. And anytime Preservation Hall would come to Minnesota, Jack Brass would open for Press Hall uh, at Orchestra Hall or something like that. And then same thing with Rebirth. Rebirth would come and play the Kaboos in Minneapolis. Jack Brass would open. We'd hang out with those guys in the green room. Like We got to know those guys pretty well. And we actually drove around the Stooges Brass Band van. They like let us borrow their van, Walter, who was a great asset. And at that time, they owned the Hi-Hat Lounge. So that whole week we spent there. Oh, that's awesome. They own the hi-hat, and we would go sit in with them. They played Tuesday nights, I think, and so we, like, sat in mm-hmm. with them. I remember bringing my horn up there, and there's a dude yelling at me to play louder, and it's just, like, wild. Oh, yeah. Culturally so cool, and then we sat in on the second, the Sunday second line, and I was just walking with my trumpet, and dude was like, come on. Like, I went down into the parade and played. Just, like, a yeah, heat, like, what an incredible experience, man, to be welcomed in. And the next time I came down, like, I brought my black and whites, and Kinfolk called me to play a gig, and so I'm getting called to play gigs with other people even though I'm down there with Jack Brass. I was like a cool... So that was probably like 2014, maybe? Okay, 2014. It was like post-Katrina.
1: I graduated high school in 2006, and then 2006 is when I went to New Orleans. I don't remember well, but I think Katrina was 2005, or... uh, I think it was 2005. I'm pretty sure I'm right about... Don't grain of salt. But my semester was the semester at Loyola that they opened up school after Katrina. So we were the first ah. class post-Katrina, which means we were, the, we were, a, cla- we were the, a class of students coming into the rebuilding of New Orleans. 2005? Um, yeah, 2005. Yep. Yeah. And, and I know now, like looking back, because I've been to New Orleans many times since then, that New Orleans was broken in yeah. 2006 it was completely right. broken i remember driving from the airport with my mom to the apartment that we got for college and the street signs were still
0: all sideways yeah you can see the water lines on the bill bu- i remember seeing the water lines on the buildings still even when i was it might have been a little or it might have been 2011 12 when i was down there but yeah like even then even yeah. by then you could still see the damage on yeah. the buildings
1: Working for Habitat for Humanity was a mandatory thing for freshmen in their first year of college. So wow. my first year, like every other weekend, we were gutting houses. And that that was heartbreaking. I remember seeing a dead dog inside of a freezer. Uh, I, I don't know why. Just like things like that. But the point is that most musicians displa- were displaced to Texas. They were displaced to Florida, to Alabama. They moved out of New Orleans. If you were a young musician comp- you got work quick and the first week i was in new orleans i got a study on wednesdays at a, i think it i don't know what it's called now i don't even know if it's open it used to be called cafe okay. uh, it's on frenchman it's the blue building with the big cat on it yep that, uh, that's not the spotted cat is it no, no not the spotted cat not, not the spotted cat there's a the spotted cat is like uh so it's like uh if you're going if you're walking towards decatur it's like the spotted cat if you keep walking you got the maple leaf and then it there's right. a There was a parking lot that now is a dat dog and across from that, that dog, there's like a, there's like a big building that on one side has a, like a vegetarian restaurant called 13 and, and yeah, Cafe Brazil, but yeah, Freddie Omar, I show up, I sit in, he's, can you sing goros in Spanish? Can you improvise? Can you read? You're in the band. And then boom, first week I had, first week, steady. Wow. And it's what you its what you mentioned. You mentioned it, what, we're talking 10 years after Katrina, but yep. that's the way that city works. You just get tacked on to work. And if you're good, you get tacked on to more work. And, right. and the audience has a certain way of acting in New Orleans. And the band, since it's a tip-based economy, you got to bring it. Yep. You have to bring a personality to the stage that will keep people in the bar as opposed to them walking out and going to... The next book, the Spotted Cat, or Maison, and Frenchman, or whatever. Yep. You got to keep them in there, and you got to keep them tipping you. Incredible city. It changed the way I see music. It changed the way I interact with audience. The audience. Uh, the North is not like that, and the Midwest isn't either. It's a
0: nope. It's a vibe. It's a vibe down there, man. Yeah, I tell my students. I'm always like, we got to go down there because you have to see how, you know, m- music is. It's dance music. It's like people dance in New Orleans. It's like they immediately like yeah. you start playing great brass band music, people immediately start dancing. And it's like up here in the Midwest, you could be putting your entire heart and soul into the thing and putting on a great show, and there are people sitting and staring. And, it, yeah. and it's very common for them to come up to you afterwards and go, "That was the best concert I've ever seen." And you're oh, like, "Oh yeah? Whoa, how I couldn't even tell that you liked it because you were sitting there quietly." But it's yeah. just yeah. yeah, the Midwest is much different than the South, no doubt.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it's, you're right. It's just human perception and how art is appreciated. I remember like my second month or my first, it might have been my first month in New Orleans. I'm at the Spotted Cat playing with a, a new friend of mine by the name of John Marcy, who later became one of my best friends in New Orleans. And we had a steady on Sundays at 2 p.m. or 1 p.m. Like, like Sunday, the first slot when they open up. And I remember we were playing in a sentimental mood, Duke Ellington, and I saw a couple get up and start dancing. And again, I'm coming from an island in the Caribbean. My perception of jazz at this point is different. And I just couldn't believe that people were dancing to a ballad played by a little quartet. I'm just like, and then it clicked. Oh, for the most part, this music was always about dancing until bebop and art
0: big band. Yep. Totally, man. Yep. Duke Ellington said, "People aren't dancing to our music anymore. We're in trouble." Yep, <laughs> dancing yeah. was an important part of that. Yeah, it's interesting how we've lost that, and we've also like really purposefully distanced ourselves from that for whatever reason. I think that's there's different there's different areas of improvised black music that's coming around to that. I think, but yeah, man, like, yeah, I think that's one of the things that certainly bit us in the <laughs> in the butt as an art form. Hey, I want to talk. Let's skip ahead. You moved to Chicago. You go to Northwestern, you're playing in Chicago. It seems like you've had all kinds of opportunities. I want to talk about your new record. Your album is titled After an Elixir, like yeah. a healing drink that would typically be made by like your grandmother in Puerto Rico, and yep. it's made up of random stuff from your cup, right? Which is almost reminiscent of gumbo in New Orleans, right? It has this almost, not that gumbo is healing, but it's this amalgamation of different things, right? Gumbo is healing.
1: Gumbo (laughs) is healing. That's right.
0: Okay, yeah, no doubt. So first, did you grow up drinking elixirs like this? Like- that your grandma made? Uh,
1: Not my grandma, actually, but uh, my mom hired this uh, cleaning lady that was also, like, basically a part of our family, uh, Enya, uh, from the Dominican Republic. She kind of, I would say she co-raised me with my mom and dad because my dad was a farmer in Puerto Rico and, like, he had, like, super long hours, 5, 4 a.m. to 6, 7 p.m., Wow. Uh, and my uh, my mom was a human resources manager at a breaker factory and uh, and my mom worked like a little bit far away from our house so like she'd be out of the house by 6 30 as well and she'd be back home by seven man yeah so bo- both my mom and dad were like always working so Eugenia or Henya, what we called her she would cook for us she would pick us up from school we'd hang out with her I'd do my homework with her and what exactly like whenever me and my brother were like playing in the rain we come in she'd be like Are you guys gonna catch a cold uh, just drink this nasty drink which <laughs> we sometimes it was good sometimes it wasn't but we're talking and I think all cultures have a thing like that you put some honey you put some Cayenne. garlic in it lemon Cayenne pepper yeah. lemon pep salt tea indians put some turmeric in it everybody has some sort of concoction like that in puerto rico it's called we put cane sugar in it n-j-u-n-j-e and that's what the album is it's a mix it's a mix of my music it's a mix of arrangements that I made by a reclaimed the Puerto Rican singer songwriter by the name of Antonio Cabang Vale el Topo. It's a mix of Chicago cats and Puerto Rican cats. It's a mix of bomba and plena, which is Puerto Rico's folkloric, like percussion and vocal styles. It's also a mixture of Cuban rhythms. It's just like a mixture of a lot of good stuff.
0: Yeah, cool. So you talk a little bit about more deeply studying those styles from Puerto Rico, <coughs> bomba. Yeah. And playing, uh, what was it like to go deep studying those styles since you had spent so much time studying in United States, universities, studying jazz music? What was it like to go back and go? Actually, this is th- these are my roots.
1: To I, I've this year in the last six months, I think I've come to the greatest metaphor I feel like about it. To me, it's a lot like jazz in the sense, not the music. The music is nothing like jazz, although it has diasporic black roots yep. that it does. But what I mean in the sense of the fact that there's 300 million Americans in the United States, right? How many of those Americans actually know about jazz? J- like j- jazz is—I forget who said this—but jazz is America's classical music. Lee
0: Morgan uh, used to call it black classical music.
1: Yeah, there you go. So there, jazz is America's art form, and and so many people don't know about it. And you could grow up your whole life living in in, in America, and not know about jazz, and now yep. not know how deep the history of it is. Just not know how insanely beautiful and heavy. And emotional it is. Yeah. Same goes for Bomba and Plena. Like we have, last time I checked, like 6 million people on the island. Bomba and Plena is a very small a group of people that play it, that conserve it, that are passionate about it. And the general Puerto Rican knows a little bit of Plena because you play Plena at all Christmas parties. It's like a, Okay. It's, so
0: funny because jazz, like all Christmas songs in the United States are jazz songs.
1: I didn't even think about that, but yeah. That's exactly
0: I mean, the same. That's so funny.
1: Yeah. I'll talk about that in a second because <laughs> it's cool but the delay the normal the average Puerto Rican only hears plena during Christmas and never hears bomba and there's a community of people that just fiercely preserve these rhythms and and it's the same it's like the same as jazz how i feel how passionate and strong i feel about preserving educating talking learning about the history of jazz is how i feel about bomba and plena and it's like when you learn about the history of jazz you learn about the history of america yep. Uh, and same with Bomba en Plena. When you learn Bomba en Plena, you learn about the history about the history of Puerto Rico. And also, Bomba is a very black style of music. Um, it's played uh, in Loiza, uh, in Loiza Aldea, in Piñones, which is the blackest neighborhood uh, in Puerto Rico, you might say. And pe- a lot of people say there's no racism in Puerto Rico, but most people don't even want to go to Loiza. And then you go to Loiza and you automatically see people here are just darker than the average Puerto Rican. And it's just a beautiful community of really great people. Is that Uh, due to the
0: slave trade? Is that due to the Atlantic slave trade?
1: I actually don't know. I actually don't know why in that particular part of the island, like Bomba, there's a in Bomba, there's a couple families. There's the Cepeda family. There's the Ayala family. There's the Emanuele family, and all the family, and there's more. But all these families come from different part of the island, and they're they're families that educate and pass on bomba, and they all have different ways of playing the music. Yeah, so I don't. I would say maybe because of the Cepeda family, that's why bomba was centric to Loiza particularly. But but I actually don't know. So uh, that's a really
0: good question. I would want to call a couple people after this and ask them. Yeah cool man uh, you your music has now so you got this record finished it's you got a single up when is it coming out
1: I got two singles up two singles oh. up Yeah, another one came out last Sunday. And next Sunday, one more, and then it drops on Bandcamp on March 17th, and it drops on streaming on March 28th. If I could move the streaming date to March 17th, I would do it. But you can't, when it comes to streaming premieres, you can't just move that the way you can just like premiere on Bandcamp. Yeah, I got eight videos in, in the studio coming out. And to me, those are important because people playing the Barriles de Bomba, people playing the Panderetas de Plena, yeah. And in seeing those instruments is like a big part of it. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm really proud of it. And, you know, m- most musicians are proud of their work, but a lot of energy and
0: time and love has gotten into this project. So I just can't stop talking about it. Yeah. And then are you releasing on a record label? Did you, or Are you independently releasing? How are you doing it?
1: diy all the way i hired a press
0: a press guy and i also
1: hired a, ra- a radio guy but uh, i researched a couple labels didn't get any offers from labels that i liked and got some offers from some pretty horrible labels just horrible terms and interesting enough the couple there was one label in particular that the package that they offered me used the same radio and press guy that i hired, you just hired and directly, it was like yeah. Directly, and it was a significant, significantly larger amount of money. Interesting. So DIY. And, uh, most of the big jazz musicians that I know now that are not on one of four or five big labels, they all DIY. Yeah. And and that's what you do too. You DIY a lot. Almost everything. I
0: DIY a lot. I do work with Ropadope Records a little bit, and I work with yeah. Shifting Paradigm Records a little bit. But their nice. terms are very like artist friendly. It's like super minimal and it's just <laughs> nice to be able to say oh Robodope is releasing this or whatever there's some name recognition there yeah oh for sure But for Robo the most Dope. part yeah it's very i'm doing 17 singles in 17 weeks with my chamber group lulu's playground right now with music we recorded a long time ago that we just never released wow um, and that's all diy and the idea behind that is that spotify likes regular releases maybe we can build up over 17 weeks pitch each one of them yep. to editorial playlists are you pitching your singles ahead of time to editorial playlists
1: no, that's the one step. That's there's many steps that I skipped, and that's the one that I wish I would have. I remember you put a video out about that a couple months ago, and uh, I think I watched, if not all of it, like three quarters of it, and I got the gist of all the information you put out, and it was super helpful. I just knew that where I personally am at with the project and with my life, I had no time for that extra step.
0: Yeah, yeah. Are you? So you still have two singles coming out, right?
1: I got one more single coming out. One more, uh, and then the record. And then the record. I also have a 15-minute documentary on the process of it. Because one of my great friends, both an incredibly talented videographer and the singer-songwriter from Little Village, who I helped produce his 11-track pop record, yeah, Giovanni Ravel, he wanted to follow the whole process in Chicago. And when I told him I was going to go to Puerto Rico... He was like, I want to go to Puerto Rico. And I was like, hold up. This is not vacation. We're doing research. Yep. And he said, no, that's what I want. So he just followed me around with a camera
0: and we hung. Oh, man.
1: Yeah, it's a, it was incredible.
0: So are you going to do like uh, a documentary style thing yeah, then?
1: It's a, yeah, it, it's done. I can oh, send cool. you the APK. It's, it's 15 minutes long and it has a bunch of interviews. Man, if, you, uh, if
0: I were your internet coach, I yeah. would tell you to break that bad boy up into one minute to three minute clips and post them regularly on tiktok and then i would tell you because it's such a cool thing to like document the process going to puerto rico between the music rehearsing your guys down there and then i would also say man if you don't have spotify for artists already do you have spotify I do. for artists I, yeah, yeah, yeah so I do. you can still pitch the next single that's coming out and you can still pitch one more single from the album when the album drops it's like you still have time to do that as long as it's a week or two in advance yeah. before. It's like just go to your upcoming tab and then write out a description about what it is, and it's done. It takes two seconds. I yeah. would totally oh, yeah. do that because it's like niche too what you're doing. And so there might be like Latin jazz playlists or even it talks about cultural music as a part of identifying what it is. It would easily be like this is the culture it's from. Yeah, you man, know, That could increase your chances of getting plays.
1: For sure. So first of all, you are my internet coach Okay. uh, because I've been following you for a couple of years now. And like, I, I, I pay attention to what you're doing and I've learned a lot of things through you. Cool. I really respect you a lot. And and like you're hustling hard and I love it. And I'm over here hustling too. And there's things I know, there's things I don't know. And I'm always learning. Totally. Totally.
0: That's it. Me too, man. Yeah. That's the whole process is just keep learning. Keep going. What did I do wrong last time I released an album? From the business perspective, it's like the craft is one thing, like really taking care of that, taking care of the art. I want to ask how you funded your record because it seems like you win a lot of grants. You've toured, let's see, you've toured to Mexico, Singapore, (laughs) Myanmar, Korea, China. Are those with your own projects? And if so, how did you fund those tours?
1: Okay. Those are lots of stories. Okay. Mexico, there's a great drummer here in Chicago that is probably my longest-knowing musical friend, Gustavo Cortinas. Gustavo, I met Gustavo in New Orleans. And, New, and Gustavo is the... I mentioned he was a drummer, right? Yes. Yeah. He's the reason I came to Chicago, because I was living the life in New Orleans, just playing six, seven gigs a week and hanging on Frenchmen every day and kind of kinda needing a, a change of scene. And he was like, yeah. just come to Chicago, come to Northwestern, apply. So I did... And I got in. Wow. I've been to Mexico three different times with Gustavo's project and one time with my project. With his help, we stayed at his mom's place. Shout out to Gabriela. Yeah. Anna, and and we, we DIY'd all of it. Just taking the acoustic bass and taxi cab and a drum set and another. Wow. We're talking the bare bones tours. Sure. You know? The Asia tours, I've done three different Asia tours to all the places that you mentioned. Through a British school system called Dulwich International. Uh, Dulwich is spelled D-U-L-L. W I C H and, and Dulwich, uh, I had a friend that recommended me for their, uh, like a uh, arts outreach program. And they were like, would you like to come to six or seven of our schools? And for two or three days at a time, teach, teach basically kids and young students in Asia about what jazz is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, of course. So they're like, okay, cool. We're going to take you to all these really cool places. If you pay your trip to China, we will pay for all the travel inside China and Singapore and Myanmar and South Korea. And they said, we'll wrap it up in two weeks. And I'm like, hold up. What if we extend it to five weeks? You still honor that deal. And then I can book jazz clubs and the nooks and crannies of the travel. Man, and they're, cool. Yeah, and they were like, we can still do that. But obviously when you're not working with the school, food, be- food, uh, lodging, that's on you. So I planned the uh, three different times uh, a, fi- a five week tour where I would coordinate these master classes with the school. They would travel us from city to city. And in between, we'd be staying at hotels or hostels. Or the last tour we did, we slept in a recording studio in Shanghai for a week ah. in exchange for recording on a bunch of Chinese releases for this one couple that I'm really good friends with right now.
0: Cool. It's a big deal.
1: You, yeah, you make it work. That's uh, an
0: incredible. Story of like ingenuity of go gettingness That's so cool to be like, let's extend it. That's like just even just, it takes some gumption just to be like, what if we do five weeks instead? And I book a bunch of stuff. That's a great idea. That's really cool, man.
1: And it came with a lot of fear. I bet because you're in charge of three other musicians and you don't, I don't speak the language, but I have some friends that can help me out. And, and you're going in between these really nice hotels that this organization books for us to a mystery host. which I got to say, we really almost never, but we really didn't really slum it. We just, I did my research when we spent five weeks traveling all across Asia, teaching, playing gigs. I have so many stories from each of those tours. I'm sure tour life comes with lots of stuff that happens. Yep. But yeah, ingenuity is part of it. You got to learn how to squeeze everything out of the lemon and not leave any juice in there. Yeah. That's that's what you got to do. Like, for example, staying in that studio and recording three or four tracks in two days was cool because now we're on like a couple Chinese-based album releases and we saved a couple thousand dollars in lodging fee and that that I ended up putting
0: in my musician's pockets. So yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. That's, that's knocking it out of the park in my mind. I think a lot now about, because I do a lot of traveling for educational stuff where people bring me into their universities and I'll teach for a couple of days. I'll do a guest artist concert with their students. They're performing my music. So they've been practicing my music ahead of time. You probably do stuff like this too. Guest artist gigs with high schools and colleges and, I, and now, because I live remotely, I, like, live farther away from a major area, I'm thinking, like, okay, now how can I piggyback every one of these trips and go, like, all right, I'll book a thing with one of my bands here, I'll book yep. a meeting with somebody in this area. Like, on my last trip, I was, like, doing a two-day, this this last weekend, I did a two-day recording session for this guy, I was, like, the guest soloist for his big band, awesome. and booked a meeting in minneapolis on my way up with somebody who might invest in gig boss so it was like i'm thinking that's my business thing but i'm thinking about like how can i maximize every one of these trips and get the most out of traveling
1: yeah and exactly what you just said takes so much mental power takes Uh, foresight
0: yeah you have to be able to think ahead and go
1: You have to think ahead so much. And I think that is the biggest key in how to live a life, a full life in music in which you remain economically stable, but you Mm. continue to build your opportunities and opportunities for other people. Because there's so many ways you can break down something. There's so many ways that you can break down something. And sometimes, for example, this is a good example. I decided when I released this album, that I'm not gonna have a CD release. I'm not gonna have a CD release because I didn't want to. I don't want to do a release with without bringing the pianist Eduardo sayas and the drummer Efraim Martinez from Puerto Rico. Yep. I just respect them so much, and their sound is the album. Man, it's such a great uh,
0: record. I've been listening to it through and through here a couple times. It's great.
1: Thanks, man. And and like I that told trumpet a, player too. Sorry. Co- Constantine, yeah, Constantine's a bad guy. Yeah. And I told this to the Segundo Belvis Cultural Center, it's a Puerto Rico Puerto Rican organization here in Chicago. And the director told me the drummer Ifraín might be in town in October because he might be playing with another band. Okay. So if he's in town, all we gotta do is bring Eduardo in and then we're that funding takes care of that. We can only we only have to deal with one person. We all get what we want. There's so many ways and it requires communication, talking, trying to figure things
0: out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that. A lot of communication, a lot of foresight. I And I, something I think about a lot is that it's hard to think ahead like that when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're stressed, when you're worried about the day to day, when you're like in the middle of a stressful time, it's really hard to think where am I going to be in three months and how can I plan more things around that? And I remember yeah. feeling that way not so long ago. And more recently, it's like, I've felt, I feel better in my head and I don't know. I changed some things about my lifestyle too that I have had a big effect on that, but I feel mm. much more like I have that I have the foresight to now plan ahead and go like, all right, let's book an Adam Eckler Orchestra thing, even though I got to book 18 musicians for this thing, which is, Boy. Like, there's always one person in every section that's like, oh, sorry, I can't do it. And then it's yep. like, all right, who do I get? Like you said, those little email, those text chains turn into hundreds of text messages and emails because you're trying to book musicians. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Hey, are you teaching at all to bring an in extra income? Or are you just playing full time? What do you, how you, how do you piece it all together?
1: No, I've been teaching one suited for the last three years. I'm basically just playing full time, but I do a lot of different things. Playing is a part of it. I play weddings on the weekends. I am grateful for that income because that income enables me to do a lot of stuff. I'm also a chart transcriber and writer. Cool. So I think I probably transcribed over like 150 salsa arrangements for three-piece horn with like whole rhythm section. So I do a lot of that work. That's tedious work. I call that music musician data entry. Yeah, totally. I did a uh, little my, copyist
0: uh, work early on and it was a little mind-numbing. Yeah. Transcribing and... and- Doing a little more of the harder stuff can be a little more fun for me, but just copyist work was brutal, man.
1: It's so brutal, but that's some income. And in the last couple of years, I've been different definitions of the word producer, but I've been producing a lot. For example, all of 2020 and 2021, I was helping my friend Giovanni Ravel produce his record and for me cool. what that meant was uh, he hired me to write string arrangements. He hired me to write the horn arrangements. He he leaned on me to hire the right musicians for the studio sessions. Yep. He wanted me there at all the studio sessions. and. Just even yesterday, Richard, I was talking to Richard and he was telling me, man, having you in the studio is such a blessing because I am, what's the opposite of fluent, not fluent. I am not fluent. (laughs) I am not fluent in uh, Pro Tools at all, you know, but I know how to lead people. So being in the studio session, knowing that we have an hour and a half to get two acoustic guitar overdubs, one saxophone overdub, and maybe one electric guitar overdub. But the drummer needs to break down. I start just moving people and just getting stuff together and getting stuff quick. Uh, Cool. Yeah. and That's a skill. It is. And people hire me for advice a lot. Yeah. People just want to pick my brain. And it's cool, but at the same time, weird for me because you know how it is. This life is a beautiful mess. So you think you're doing something right. And then you know that like, in my case, I haven't done the e- editorial playlist stuff or or this badass album is out and I haven't sent out booking emails to people yet. So people are like, you wanna pick my brain? You can pick my brain, but this is not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. It's not perfect. Yeah.
0: And that's a, I think that's a good thing to, to <coughs> know, too, is that you don't have to be perfect to know more than somebody else and be able to help people. That's been my whole journey is I want to help people and I'm learning all this stuff and I want people to know what I'm learning. You were nominated yeah. for a Grammy for your 2017 record, Latin, Latin us, Grammy. yeah. Latin, Latin Grammy. Grammy. Yeah. And how, like, how did that process work? How do you get nominated for a Grammy? Can you talk a little bit about that? For
1: sure. That process was so surprising to me. There's a organization in Puerto Rico called the National Foundation for Popular Culture. Huh. And a staff of five, they're in Old San Juan. They have a great building in which they serve and promote that is Puerto Rican culture. So whether it be music, whether it be art, whether it be poetry or theater, uh, yeah. movies too. And they just called me up. And they just said, hey, we want to nominate you for the Latin Grammys. We want to put you in the pool with these two other projects, which, by the way, those two other projects, like, literally blew the pants off of my project. But it's so cool to
0: be a part of that. It's so cool to be included.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. I was kind of like, you know what? Okay. So anyway, I was like, yes. So I, I literally can't back then in 2017, I was teaching, right? I canceled all my lessons, literally just told the front desk person. I was like, Hey, I'm really sorry about this. I got to go do something. Cancel all my lessons. I know you're going to hate me. I will make it up to you. I don't know how. I just, (laughs) I just peaced out, went to a coffee shop and gave them everything that they needed from me. And the next day I was in the pool. Wow. And then, so I get, I guess, I guess you have to be nominated by a voting member or an organizational voting member. I know the Latin Grammys and the actual Grammys are different, but, and also through that process, I became also a member of the Latin Grammy, a screening committee for two years, where we went to Miami with a bunch of other badasses and we just, we screened through all the submissions to make sure they fit the requirements for the Grammys. Yep. Yep. And five brutal days of yes to this one, no to that one. Basically. Are you
0: getting paid for that?
1: Nope. Don't, you wow. don't get paid for it. You you get lodging. You get a, you get a food stipend, and you also get to hang with yeah You get yeah. to hang with Mike Tyson. Yeah. So it's kind of like a it's kind of like a really badass networking opportunity.
0: Cool. Cool. Um,
1: but yeah, got nominated, and I and I'm proud of myself. But I knew I was like, I'm filler. I'm not gonna win. But <laughs> got, but you gotta do it. You gotta do it.
0: Of course, man. And now you're in the mix, and now you've got this new record coming out that's totally badass, and. Yeah, man. I wouldn't be surprised at all if you're back in that same place. Again, yeah. I really hope that's the case. Man, we don't have to keep any more of your time. What we're going to do is we're going to link Roy's music in the description. So go listen to what he's got going on. We'll link videos as they come out. We'll put some of Roy's music on the Gig Boss Bosses playlist, and we'll link your website and stuff too. And so people yep. can find you and listen to this great new album called... I don't want to screw it up.
1: Yeah, you got it. <laughs>
0: all right. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, man. This is awesome. Of course, man. I appreciate you. Yeah, all right. Cool. We did it. We did it. We're, We're done. Did it. Hey, Adam here. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Roy. Listen, sometimes these conversations keep going once the interview is finished. This actually happens a lot. And this time I asked Roy if I could just use the zoom audio so that you all could hear what we were talking about at the end afterwards some of it's personal stuff but we can talk about conquering fears we talk about comparing ourselves to other artists we talk about some stuff that's really cool so i thought you might like to hear it here's the rest of our conversation this is like the off the record stuff so you get a little bit of a deeper look into us as real humans which i think is a cool look so here's a little more conversation and then i'll talk to you afterwards
1: awesome yeah man i really do respect everything you do let me just turn this dot off but, uh, dude you're hustling so hard man you're working out you're putting <laughs> shit out you're doing this talk about living a full life
0: yeah i'm working on it man it's, i've always been wired this way and now that yeah. i'm not playing full-time it felt weird to have i don't know if i really even have that much time i'm running a whole program at a university so it's, it's a lot of work doing that and i'm up yeah. for tenure this year so i like awesome I just got a letter saying that the Dean of the arts and humanities has recommended me for promotion. So all those letters came in. So it seems like that'll, that'll come through as I'll be a tenured professor, but it's like really ultimately I want to be a full-time work for myself person. Again, I did that for 10 years and that's really what I love. And I think I'll get back to that. And gig boss is one of the ways that I want to get back to that. So I want to build this thing so, that it's so big that I can teach when I want and not because I have to. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And also, um, when you look at the big cats, Wayne Shorter, for example, or Herbie, or like those cats, right? They pick and choose their gigs. Of course, we're talking about rock stars here, but like they, if they do five or 10 big gigs a year and spend the rest of their time educating, teaching, coordinating, I think that's cool as shit. If I, if I could play 10 gigs a year that pay crazy money, Right. And they're very special and I can put my heart into those. I would do that. I'd miss, I I'd probably jam a lot more in my house with people,
0: yep. but yeah, the wedding, dude, I mean, the wedding stuff that you're doing right now, the private party stuff, the funeral gigs. I did a lot of that shit for so many years. And I just like, yeah. I hated that, man. I really didn't want to do those gigs. And, it felt like they were sucking my soul a little bit.
1: Yeah. I figured how to compartmentalize that so that psychologically it doesn't bother me. I have very good mental boundaries of that, but I do, I've been in Chicago for 11 years, been doing weddings for three or four. Yeah. And I think maybe one or two more years because I don't want to be sucked into it as a lifer. Cause I, I know the lifers and boy, are they miserable?
0: Yeah, man. There's a lot of bitterness, yeah. a lot of bitterness. Oh
1: a lot of bitterness and and imagine the bit bitterness that that occurs when when they see that you're putting out this badass project that's getting all these reviews and that grammy winners are like talking about it and shit and then they're like i'm just i just play cocktail hour every friday and saturday i don't do anything else with my life yeah yeah they focus the bitterness on you but it's okay
0: yeah it's a tough that's a tough thing man i it's like when you're a force like you are And I felt that way about myself. I've just got a forceful energy and that's just who I am. And so it's interesting, man. I sometimes, I get vibes from people and I'm like, are these people, like, do they not like me? What's going on? And then later on, they'll be like, can I take a picture with you? And I go, oh, they're like intimidated by me Yeah, a little bit. And and, And I'm like, wow, I'm not trying to be intimidating. This is just just no, doing my thing no. it's it's really interesting how
1: the psychology of the jazz student and the psychology of musicians work because just cuz you look good, you dress good, you you are fit, you communicate effectively and you play your horn like a fucking badass like that doesn't mean that you're mean or angry or bitter person it just means you want to be successful in your life and you're attempting to be as successful as you can be and for some reason that intimidates people it does and it also comes with jealousy and man i i acknowledge like i'm a i'm a good communicator obviously but i'm a bit awkward sometimes and i might not say the right thing all the time but i am not a dick or a prick and and sometimes like just last night at, at the jazz showcase like somebody just said something to me, and i'm like why would you ever say that to a other person like like You you woke up today or you saw me and decided to just buy me like that like what's I didn't put my album out to stick a finger to people I put my album out to celebrate Puerto Rican culture and but to some people it's just you're a threat you can be a threat to people without being a threat to people
0: yeah yeah it's interesting how people interpret things that way I think we always try we always come it's a problem all musicians have is comparing ourselves to other people and then we start to feel like we're in inadequate. And one of the things I really harp on with my students is that you are the way you are. You're perfect the way you are. And we got to start there. We have to start with believing that you're worthy to make sounds and then go from there. You'll learn the language over time. You'll listen, you'll develop, but you got to get rid of the fear. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm not fearless. Me neither, man you know what it is people think you're fearless but what you are is you're accustomed to being in fear like yesterday one of the tracks was a aguinaldo which is a type of puerto rican like mountain song that comes with a form and chord changes it's like a thing and my buddy decided to mix it with giant steps in the most fucked up way possible and then on top of that he's like i don't want you to play soprano and i'm like bro i haven't played soprano in two years probably and he's like, busted out we're doing it Fuck. okay so it's the first time i ever recorded a soprano on something and i fucking killed it but oh my god was i shit in my pants recording uh, it's like somebody somebody hires you to record pick a little trumpet
0: in three weeks yeah that, that that'd be brutal that'd be brutal yeah. i would do it i would totally do it yeah <laughs> but man yeah that would be that would be scary but yeah so yeah. i just i remember hearing before will smith slap Chris rock. He said something like a joy exists <laughs> a joy exists on the other side of fear. You know, it's yeah. like really have to get past that well, I like and that. fight through it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You gotta. Yeah. And I tell people, I'm telling people all the time. I think the, the biggest thing I tell people is just don't be afraid. Just Don't be afraid. If you suck at playing music and you're afraid, you're not going to get better, at least not faster. But if you're completely fearless and you suck at playing music, you're going to look really weird to a lot of people for a long time and then it's going to change. And then you're just going to be on top of it.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, man. This was a nice little bit. Of course, uh, bro. At the end, I didn't record it, but it's recorded on zoom. So I might, I might post the clip from it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want, man. I, everything I say to everybody is never behind closed doors.
0: All right, man. Cool. Yeah. Thanks dude. Appreciate you. Yeah. Take care, bro. Peace, man. All right. You too. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Roy. If you dig the show, please follow us wherever you listen. And if you could rate us five stars and even leave us a little review, that will help us out. That'll help us show in more people's feeds and will help the show grow. We wanna keep this thing going. And hey, are you a band leader or a freelancer that plays in multiple bands or both? I made an app for you. It's called Gig Boss. It's a way to organize your freelance career and your band leader career. You can book the band, book the members of the band, you can track all the details, you can link charts and recordings in the notes section, and you can track your finances, and it's getting better and better every month. It's free, it's on iOS and Android. I would love it if you would download it and give it a look and start organizing your gigs with it. We're trying to make the best possible thing for you, and it was born of my struggle to organize everything as a full-time musician. You heard me and Roy talking about it a little bit in this conversation. Thanks. See you next time.